you can curse, but we'll just edit it out and replace it with fart noises. I'll be providing plenty of my own. <laughs> okay, good. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you not even live. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jameson Dance. Hi guys. It's it's tough to follow that. Uh, Merrick Christensen. Hey. Joe Eames. Howdy. Tim Caswell. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two guests. Uh, the first one is Tom Dale. Hey, thanks for having me. And the other is James Halliday. Yep. Hello. Welcome to the show, guys. We were having a conversation a while back. I, I don't remember if it was during another episode or after another episode, but we were having a discussion over code complexity and having like small, simple uh, libraries or small, simple sets of functionality versus like large monolithic uh, sets of functionality and uh, h- how to approach those and when they're appropriate. So um, we brought you guys on to help us explore this because uh, you're experts, right? I don't think that's a fair uh, analysis of the situation, but we can certainly fumble our way through something. <laughs> All right, so why don't you guys, uh, real quick, just kind of introduce yourselves, um, give us a little background on what your experience is so that we uh, know which questions to ask you guys. Uh, James, why don't you start? I know you've been on the show before, but... So, hello. I suppose I wrote Browserify, which is relevant here. That's a CommonJS-style bundler packager thing that just uses NPM, and I have a bunch of other libraries, and I really like doing development as just a bunch of little together. They're all published completely independently on NPM. I think I'm up to like 230-ish some odd modules on NPM now. So I've been doing that, and I really like that style. Rock on. Yep, and then we also have Tom. Uh, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Uh, So I guess, so I should say I should give the caveat that I am not a classically trained engineer. I don't have a degree in computer science or anything like that. I've basically, like I said, fumbled my way through the whole thing. Um, but perhaps uh, one of the most influential aspects of uh, stuff that I've worked on that has influenced how I perceive programming is I was working on the uh, iCloud apps, the web applications for iCloud.com. Uh, at the time when I was working there, they were, it was still called MobileMe. Um, and these are really big applications. Uh, so they're basically the equivalent of like iCal on the desktop and the address book on the Mac desktop, etc. And then I left and uh, since then I probably what I'm best known for is I've been working on a JavaScript MVC framework called Ember.js. Yehud and I have a company together and we basically work on it and that's basically my main focus right now. And uh, I think I agree with James. Uh, I also like writing small modules that work well together. I think the difference between us, our philosophies, is that when I present it to the world, I like to present it as an integrated package that's easy to get started with. It's obvious where to get started with. Uh, and if you need to swap out the modules, you can do that. But that's not the default behavior, basically. I just got to correct one thing you said. You said the thing you're best known for is Ember. 
Um, I thought the thing you were best known for was big data and, and Hadoop. And well, kind of Hadoop stuff. specifically, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Ember, and then Ember is really an extension of, of your work with Hadoop. Uh, well, Ember.js is really the premier framework for integrating with big data and Hadoop. Although, uh, as a side note, you know I found something out? Did you guys know that Hadoop is not real-time? Oh my gosh, you guys now, are... I thought I thought to be big data, you had to be real time, but apparently not. They go hand in hand. Everybody knows that. Yeah, I'm actually working on a, submitting a talk to Hadoop uh, Summit. I don't know anything about. I don't actually even know what Hadoop does or what it is. But um, I think there's a vector whereby I can talk about JavaScript and Hadoop. So I've been doing some research. <laughs> nice. <laughs> good, good. All right. So. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of get into this a little bit. It seems like a lot of people, when they talk about the trade-offs between, you know, a large set of tools like Ember versus, you know, the, the little one-off tools that, uh, that James is talking about, it, it seems like a lot of people tend to pick one or the other based on, well, this, you know, this, like you said, gives me everything that it needs to get started versus other people saying, you know what, I just want a whole bunch of tools that do one thing and do it real well. So, so what is the trade-off? I mean, when is one appropriate over the other? Uh, well, I don't know that you, they're actually two sides of the same question. I don't know. So I guess my, my approach to this is that you want to choose a solution that fits the complexity of the problem, right? So you want simple solutions, but you don't want simplistic solutions. And I guess... Uh, you know, I've written plenty of microlibraries. In fact, if you go onto the GitHub page for uh, my company, Tilda, github.com slash tilde io, you'll actually see that we have published many different microlibraries that solve one very specific problem. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the pieces of Ember are built in terms of these, I guess, what you call microlibraries, right? So I, I personally, I think that you should just, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem, if you can solve it using a smaller solution, then that's great, right? But usually after you think through, especially these very complex problems that we're trying to solve, you need a bigger and more integrated solution. So you should be pragmatic. You should pick the approach that works for the particular problem. I don't have anything against microlibraries or small modules. Uh, however, we have a, a name for the thing, which is, uh, we have a name for when you see the same solution to every problem, and the name for that is ideology. And uh, I don't really subscribe to the ideology that everything must be small, that everything must be these tiny little things, and you, it's a, your responsibility to package those together. Sure, sure. So how, how would you describe your approach to solving problems so, like this? I was, I was going to say, I think that that uh, is, is kind of similar to the argument as to like whether a student should learn C first versus learning Python first. Like for a lot of people, what's going to be more motivating is being able to get work done, being able to see the accomplishment of something. And so for that, I would say the large frameworks make a lot more sense to come into it, right? Because you don't want to come into all the crap of JavaScript. You want to come in through a narrow channel that's well-tuned, that helps you get something done, and then learn more about the crap and the hard parts and the bad parts and go so like my my thought would be to come in with something like a, a, a framework and then divert into the smaller modules and being nitpicky afterwards. AJ, that's a great point, and I think that leads to another point, which is that oftentimes when you're learning, when you're new to a new domain of software engineering, you don't know what you don't know, and 
it's bad if you are learning as a web developer and you're deploying stuff to production that's susceptible to a lot of, uh, for example, security vulnerabilities that, as an industry, we've already learned how to deal with. Things like CSRF attacks, right? Now, you, like maybe you can deal with simple CSRF attacks, but there are actually many exotic varieties. And you don't, you're not aware of those things. Uh, encodings are another good example, right? You're not even aware of the problem of encodings because you've never dealt with it. And that's too much complexity to load up front. So having a framework that helps you deal with those things, and then once you've leveled up to a point where you can understand what's doing, then you can swap out whatever pieces you'd like. So yeah, I, I think that's a good methodology. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with a lot of things you're you're saying, Tom. My problem is is like say some of these bigger frameworks, um, because they they grow bigger and they're more integrated, they have to make a lot more decisions in terms of what you can use with them, right? Like it's really hard to keep the same level of flexibility when you uh, are using some sort of monolithic framework up front. And so that's one of the, you know, monolithic is a bad word because it, it carries with it a negative connotation. But for example, when I when I use, say, Ember.js, I find myself getting frustrated a lot because there's some opinions that you guys have that I don't have. And because it's so integrated, I can't necessarily change out those opinions that I have. Does that make sense? Uh yeah, totally. And I would say that if you have opinions that differ largely from ours, you Ember's probably not a good fit for you, right? I, I mean, that's kind of the uh, the trade-off that you get with an opinionated framework. Uh, I think DHH feels the same way about Rails, right? Which is that, if, for example, if you really like configuring your uh, your application server with a bunch of XML files, you probably shouldn't use Rails, right? So uh, definitely the opinions that Yehud and I have about how you should architect these web applications are 100% baked into Ember. And it's, it's not something like Backbone, where it's basically, we'll give you these primitive objects, and you compose those yourself to figure out how you want to best architect this. We have some strong ideas, and we think that those are really good ways. Um, but of course, you'll, you can easily fall off the happy path if you disagree. But some of the things I struggle with there, for example, like using using strings to trace down an object path means that you have to hang off of a namespace, right? And and those things you just have to buy in, like you're saying, uh, in order for to, to use the framework effectively because you end up fighting it more. And I, I think that's one of the hard things. I've always been attracted to these more monolithic things or these larger frameworks because the the development environment is so consistent and maintainable, but the nerd in me has a really hard time buying into opinions that I don't subscribe to all the time. Uh, so, so I feel like I, I wish there was more of a middle ground because when you buy into all the, the, the micro libraries, you end up piecing together a situation that uh, isn't nearly as consistent and, you know, a blessing to work in. Right. And, and I, think, I, think that's what the, that, I think that's fundamentally the problem with the micro libraries. And I, the job that we have is to make sure that we, as an integrated solution, the point of making a modular is that you should be able to swap things out, for example. So let me give you a good, let me get a good, a good example of this. So I know that both James and I uh, share opinions about AMD, uh, that Merrick, you do not. And that's fine, right? Like my, so I, presumably you guys read the DHH blog post, Rails is Omakase, and it's kind of a similar, th I wouldn't put it the same way that DHH put it, but it, it's the vague, the rough contours of the argument you were making apply to Ember. And but at the same time, he says, you know, if you want to take a piece of the menu and add your own, you should be able to do that. So we've been doing a lot of work uh, internally as we approach Ember 1.0. The internals are geared around the idea that maybe you want to use AMD. Maybe you want to use some kind of module loader. And we want to, we, the approach that Rails takes, that we take, is 
if you want to do something that we don't think is a good idea, at the very least, we'll give you the hooks into the framework so that you can put together some kind of integrated package that works in the way and with the opinions that you have. Yeah, which, which is something that I, I think these monolithic frameworks oftentimes don't do, but, but they ought to do, right? Because there is certainly a middle ground. And you usually see that as projects mature, right? And so I'm, I'm looking forward to Ember having those kinds of things because admittedly, working with AMD and Ember has gotten a ton better than it, than it was you know, months ago. And these bigger full stack frameworks also tend to, when they do, I think they do try to make themselves modular. I, I find very few that at least get to be to a good standpoint in popularity that don't say that they aren't modular that don't say that they're module, like modular, they say they are, yet when it comes right down to it, what they anticipate that you might want to swap out isn't what you end up wanting to swap out. And it just comes down to a fact of, no, you can't be, it's, it's hard to be truly, truly, truly modular where you can swap out truly anything. And like you said at the beginning, if, you, if your opinions differ way too much from the opinions in this framework, then you're not, then you shouldn't be using this framework. So... I want to jump in here real quick. I have something to say that's kind of along the same lines or, or more of a question, I guess, for Tom and and uh, James. But uh, is it easier to write something that is tightly uh, coupled together like that versus making it modular? And what what are the challenges in, in doing something like that? I can jump in just from having done this a little bit, not at the scale that um, either of these two guys have. But yes, it is way harder it's much harder to write stuff that's modular and that allows other people to hook into. It makes the code more complex, at least when I did it. Maybe that just means I'm bad at it. it looks like James is trying to talk. Yeah, I, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say because uh, he, he does kind of have the, the experience from the other end. It so looks like he's having Skype difficulties. Everybody look in the mirror and say James, or actually say Substack three times. There you go. We'll summon him. Click your heels together. Well, yeah. I, I was going to say earlier... Substack. That, um, Substack. Substack. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. I, I was going to say earlier that that coming from my perspective, where I am often teaching new people how to program and getting people started in the field, that large frameworks are actually a problem because first you have to learn the language, you have to learn programming. And for example, I had some interns last summer, and the job I got for them. The, the employer said, all right, well, you need to use Twitter Bootstrap, you need to use MongoDB or CouchDB, and you need to use all these large frameworks. And so they basically had like 10 technologies to learn at once, which was just completely overwhelming. Uh, but that's not a fair comparison because none of those are really well integrated. I think the counterexample is that many people learn to be web developers using Rails without a, without a deep understanding of Ruby. And many people uh, on, the, on the client side learn to be uh, web developers using jQuery without a f deep understanding of JavaScript. See, but yeah, David, the, this is my contention with that, and maybe this isn't a real valid contention, but I, the people that I've met that do have that approach, I wouldn't call them web developers or server developers. They're, they're Rails developers and jQuery developers. Like, they don't understand web development. They truly just understand jQuery, and without it, they're kind of lost. Yeah, but the, the flip side is is that you, you do kind of get in and the frameworks provide you with a pattern um, to follow. So you kind of have this anointed path. And if you set up the models a certain way, you set up your controllers a certain way, you set up your views a certain way, it'll work. And then you can start to branch out. And so then you start fiddling with the CSS or the JavaScript or the, you know, whatever. And you start to realize, okay, well, if, if I really want to get 
the real power behind this, then I need to understand the under, underlying structure and the underlying language features so that when I need to do something that's a little outside of the cookie cutter that I've been handed, then I can do it. And so I think it is a good way to get in. But at the same time, it really depends on the problem that you're trying to solve because most people aren't just learning to program just to learn to program. They usually sure. have some problem in mind. So, And I think... I think one of the things for me is like I learn. It's a lot easier for me to learn by pulling, say, one of the uh, uh, Substacks modules and looking at that source because it's isolated and it has a single purpose, and I don't have to look at any of the integration pieces. It's just like it is what it is. Does that make sense? It depends a lot on the uh, personality of the person as well, because like maybe the people that you're thinking of, Merrick, that you meet, those are people that aren't driven by learning new things. So if you learn a framework. You're, if you, depending on your personality, you're potentially going to be driven to stretch out, learn new things, and you're going to learn. You're going to want to start to get into CSS, and pretty soon you're going to want to learn something else besides Rails. Yeah, and maybe my expectations are too high for people, but I would, I would like it if the majority of people that use a framework would be able to rebuild that framework. Or, yeah. or, or I don't know. That, I mean, obviously that's a really high demand, but I think that's a really, that's a really good way. I mean, think about it. Can you re-implement TCP? But you operate on TC you program against TCP. Dude, I, can, I can re-implement TCP with HTML tables. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. No, that's actually an excellent point. And I think I think I've probably been a little bit spoiled that way. But it is a difference because we've reached a point where we can abstract away TCP. Right? People don't need to understand TCP to be a web developer. Sure. Whereas like you might need to understand one little tiny principle, but that's it. And being able to understand how the frameworks work. To me, gives you so much more powerful in terms of so much more power in terms of how to use the framework. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's get back to the topic a little bit. James, are you able to chime in here? I feel kind of bad because I really want to hear what he has to say, but let, let let's talk about a little bit more of this. So it it sounds like with something large like Ember, you're you're talking about breaking it apart so that you can you can swap things in and out and you just provide kind of an API that people can plug into, you know, hooks is what you said. And, and, and you know, if you're, if you're familiar with those terms, then it makes sense. But anyway, so why is it so hard to make things modular? Why, why is it so much work? Oh, it's not hard to make things modular. It's hard to make things modular in a way that they all compose well together. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, from from the very bottom all the way to the top, right? So, so like I said earlier, uh, we try to extract these microlibraries from problems that we're solving with Ember. But I think so. Yehud and I spend far more time um, talking and discussing than we do actually coding. Uh, we like to go for walks down the Embarcadero, uh, which is less romantic than it sounds, and uh, and kind of and kind of like really thoroughly discuss these very hard. CS problems from the top to bottom. So what is the core of the problem? What are, what are people trying to do? And then from that core piece, we kind of back up and say, okay, well, how can we expose that in a way that's really approachable to people, in a way that doesn't expose the concepts to them, right? So it's, it's better to hide things from people than to force them to learn about it and deal with it. Um, and I think that's why it's taken us almost two years to write Ember. Because <laughs> we, we really want to think through these problems. So, And I think that's the piece that you miss if you focus too much on the modular. I think that's good, right? You you have to write modular software if you're going to write good software. I think James and I definitely agree on that. But I believe that how those modules compose together has to be influenced by viewing the problem holistically. And I think that's a piece 
that is missing in for a lot of people where we say, okay, well, just go find all of your favorite modules from NPM and, and put them all together. That piece of stepping back, looking at the holistic picture and integrating, that's what's missing. Okay, so I kind of want to hear things from the other end. I know some of you guys do deal with things on the other end. So, I mean, I know these frameworks and I've built many of my own frameworks, yet I find myself in practice never ever using them. If I have a problem to solve, the first thing I'm going to do is spend about, I don't know, 10 minutes seeing what's out there. And if nothing there fits exactly what I want, I'll just write my own. And that's the biggest beef I have with frameworks is you have to make some decisions about what this framework is good for. Like you take Rails, for example, it's really, really good at making web applications that have a database and have some HTML templates and do something. Like if you're, if you're writing that kind of app, you can, you can just throw it, throw it out instantly using Rails. Yet the kind of things that I want to create are always unique. I want to do something that's never been done before. And if it's never been done before, then how is a framework going to help you do something that's never been done before? That, that's a lot harder to make frameworks that can do that. And that's where the, the smaller libraries work well because, well, I need an MD5 hash. Has someone written that code? It's kind of hard to do by hand. And that can be a micro library. So to your point, Tim, like I started Ruby with Rails and I thought it was way cool because I could, I could do a few simple things really easily. But then when I got to the point of wanting to customize it, it was too hard. And so when I got into Node where there wasn't a framework yet, it was definitely a breath of fresh air. And I was actually doing things faster with Connect than I could do with Rails because of the specific things I was trying to do. So I totally agree with that. But I still feel like the experience of coming into a framework to learn some patterns and to get the general idea is much better than trying to start from some, from scratch. It's like learning memory management when what you want to do is you know, add numbers. Right. And, and Tim, the thing you have to keep in mind is that you're Tim Caswell, right? Like, there, not everyone is you, and it, if everyone was, the world would be a much better place. But or we'd uh, have know. thousands and thousands of modules that don't work together. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, I mean, obviously, we all have a, a limited amount of time here on the planet, and I spend time thinking about the things that I'm working on. You know, are they good? Are they valuable? And I think the way that I look at these problems is in terms of leverage, right? So I can work on a particular problem, but maybe it doesn't affect that many people. Or I can work on solving a problem that helps other people solve the problem that they want to solve. And the thing that I realized is that there are just, it's 2013, the world is powered by software. There are going to be swaths of people who are writing that software that are not us, right? They don't actually care about the craft. They don't really, they're not doing it for the problem solving. For them, it's a job. And I think that you can... Uh, so DHH is a thing, which is that there is value in climbing the mountain together. There's there's value in having the experts be on more or less the same path as the beginners. Um, there are numerous good things that fall out of that. So for me, I want to provide a thing where people don't have to learn all the intricacies. They don't have to get in-depth with the framework. They can deliver something of value relatively easily, relatively quickly, and go on with their lives and go home and be with their families on the weekends and not have to like focus on learning the intricacies of anything. Sure. Right. So, so my thing is, is that, and, and I'm probably just going to summarize what Tom just said, but there are, there are a certain number of people that have a problem that's fairly, that are all fairly similar. So, um, you know, I'm trying to deal with something where, you know, I have this backend service that provides a ton of data that I need to organize in a certain way. 
And so um, something like Ember gives me a lot of conventions um, for dealing with that and thinking about those problems. Um, to Tim's point, if I'm going to do something that's totally different, that, that has a totally different application, you know, Ember may not be a good fit. But, um, you know, if, if it gives me a pattern to solve a problem that I actually have, then the, the framework has a lot of value. Right. And the truth is, yeah, like, like Tom said, he thinks about it from the problem as a whole. And, and that's awesome because it, cause when you're solving that problem, you're going to have a better experience than looking anywhere else. But if you want to use your same tool and solving a completely different problem, then sometimes you can be fighting against it. Is that, is that fair, Tom? Oh, yeah. I, I think that you guys have summed it up well. I, I don't want people to get the idea that I think Ember is a good tool for everyone to use, uh, right? That there are certain classes of problem where I think it will make you more productive faster. Tim, probably you are not a good candidate to use Ember. <laughs> yeah. The, you mean the writing other... crypto libraries in the browser? Ember doesn't help you with that? Uh, not yet, but we have a uh, version two, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. But we're, or, or parsing Linux joystick kernel output. Yeah, I remember at one point uh, Yehuda pointed out that uh, the to-do list app wasn't a terrific example of use for Ember, and and to me that kind of drove the point home too. You know, it 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 depends on the tool, it depends on the problem. You know, because uh, it if I were going to do a to-do app, I probably would use Backbone, just because it's so simple and there really aren't that many moving parts. It's when you have the big, the big lists of objects and things that it really. Um, it really pays off to use something that that is built to organize that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a I'm a big fan of picking the right tool for the job. A lot of people think that I think that all web applications should be JavaScript rich MVC. I don't think that's true. Um, I think that there are a lot of applications that are better served by a traditional Rails app, the Omakase stack, if you will. I think that there are a lot of web applications that are served by uh, little pieces of backbone code. Right. It's all about picking the right tool for the job. Sure. I, I agree with that sentiment. I have an analogy. I used to do Python GTK apps back in the day, right after I left Swing and swore I'd never do Java again. And the cool thing about GTK, like most GUI frameworks, is you have widgets. And that's great. You want to, you want to, you want a combo box? There's a combo box. You want a tree view? There's that. And with the new platform of the web, you have HTML and CSS. The browser doesn't give you all these fancy widgets. And so, I think that's a similar situation of the micro frameworks versus the the more structured system, the more structured frameworks. Do you think that's a valid analogy? Does it make sense at all? Well, you probably shouldn't bring up widget frameworks because I used to work on Sprout Core, so it's a little bit of a sore subject. <laughs> but in seriousness, uh, I so I agree with you. Um, I think that there that's a good analogy. But at the same time, I think that there are people who are coming to the web that are frustrated that they want very simple controls that aren't available. And and you actually see that, right? Like you see autocomplete fields, you see things like slick grid, you see big tables, you see things like jQuery mobile and jQuery UI, uh, where the web is clearly deficient in terms of providing everything that people need, especially when all they want to do is slap something together and ship it and call it a day. Right. And even more so, I've been working on a platform on and off for the last while that's based on OpenGL. It's basically a WebGL type thing. And there you've got nothing. At least in HTML, you have text and divs and CSS and boxes and borders. But when you're doing GL, you got shaders and vectors. And if you want to make like a text widget or a dialog box, good luck. That's going to be a lot of work. Yet it's insanely powerful. You have this very simple system with these very simple primitives and all this massive parallel GPU. So I mean, there's definitely trade-offs there. I really, I really wish uh, that James was here to participate because 
I have some questions to ask him. But I actually think that there is a fair bit of analogy between um, Ember and the project he's been working on most recently, which is Voxel.js, which is really cool. I've been, I think Voxel.js is really cool. I've been playing around with it. I think that it's actually very similar to Ember in the sense that um, it, it, it's similar to Ember other than there's no standard distribution, right? But Voxel is basically like a 3D rendering engine. There are many modules that you put together and it all works together, and that's basically what Ember is. Ember is just like a standard set of those modules put together. In fact, if you go and look at the Ember source code, if you go to the GitHub repo, you go into the packages directory, you will see the equivalent of, you know, there's like, uh, it's, it's broken up into different packages, and each one of those packages provides a small piece of functionality. Right. Recently, I was working with TJ on his component JS system, and I, was, I wanted to make some UI widgets for it because I was making an app and I needed like a, a slider where you could resize things. I needed a tree view, these basic widgets that HTML doesn't have. And so I was asking TJ, I'm like, are there any conventions in component? He's like, well, not really, except for maybe your object has a .el property that's your root element. And so basically, I had to make a set of widgets and then make up conventions for them on the fly. And as long as you use my widgets together, you have a framework. But if I wanted to use someone else's micro component, that use different conventions, then I'd have to shim it to be able to use it. Yeah, so, we, and that's and that's why it feels so fragmented, right? When you're using those kinds of things. Yeah, it's it's not so much the monolithic versus versus the modular. It's are your conventions compatible? Yes. Yeah. So, a, in a, yeah. Can can you guys hear me? Yes. Yay. Yay. Uh, Tom was saying that Voxel JS is monolithic, I believe. Yeah, it is kind of monolithic. That's that, fair. Uh, that no no no. Uh, so that was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not a good thing by any means. It it certainly could be more minimal. I'm just not really sure how to do that for a 3D system. That's not right. really. Yeah, I'm also not sure how to do that well for a JavaScript MVC framework. Okay, well, I mean, maybe it's just not possible for MVC frameworks, and I don't even use those, so I don't I don't really know too much. Backbones, uh, guys. Uh, I so. So James, I had I had a question for you that I wanted to ask, which is that uh, have you have you gone and looked at the Ember source code ever? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, so the the point. So I think it was you that posted a comment on Google Plus one time that accused me of being a peddler of monolithic software. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not angry. I'm just I'm just trolling lightly right now. Uh, but I, I think someone okay. said that. Uh, and, I don't uh, think I said that. I really don't even know much of Ember in the first place. So, I'm I'm just I'm just teasing you mildly. Um, but I'll call you that, dude. You're such a peddler. <laughs> Every time I release a library, you troll me about the lines of code it has. I confirm. Um, so anyway, the, <laughs> so, so James, the thing that I want to say is actually, if I think that you and I actually have a more similar worldview than people might think. Because if you actually go and look at the Ember source code uh, on GitHub, there's a directory called packages. And inside of packages, there are a number of packages. And each one of those is an individual piece that provides some value to the system. So some packages oh, have to well, that's, on other packages. Okay. So why aren't those separate projects, though? I mean, because so this is one thing that I think is really important for splitting things up properly, is to split them up entirely so that it's really easy to contribute so that you get independent versioning and and so that each piece is completely independent and can be reused by other systems because like what's the good of reuse if we can't actually reuse the pieces trivially without so having I, to like reach in and rip them out 
So two answers to that. The first is that many many of the dependencies of Ember we actually have released as microlibraries, which are totally separate projects. You can use them with Backbone, you can use them with whatever. Uh, usually when we release these microlibraries, we try to make them run in both Node and in the browser, which is probably more painful than an Iron Maiden. Um, but the, the real answer to the question, why aren't these provided separate things, is because there is no good package manager for the web. And in fact, we were distributing these as separate packages back two years ago. We were working on a project called BPM, the Browser Package Manager, uh, which unfortunately we haven't had the resources to work on again yet. Uh, but the intention absolutely was to release these as separate projects. There's just no good infrastructure for doing that for the browser right now. I disagree. NPM is for JavaScript, and it works. So, and most importantly of all, it has. I think it's it has over twenty thousand packages right now. I mean, uh, yeah. So a you lot just those... you you just highlighted why it doesn't work. Why why it doesn't work? Because there are twenty thousand packages, and when I am Joe okay, so who's getting started, and I have to find jQuery for the browser. Is it jQuery lowercase? Is it jQuery capital Q? Is it browser dash jQuery? I have hey, no. That that was my fault. So that, so that was my this fault. is this is good. That was my fault. Don't use that in the first place. Don't use jQuery. If you're going to do modules, that's really different from... I mean, jQuery was built for in the age before modules, so it has a lot of relics for that. If you're going to use jQuery, just throw it in a script tag. Um, it's really not meant for the future, the modular future that we're racing towards. Have so, you read the source code for jQuery 2.0? Oh, it's so bad. I actually have read the jQuery. Well, not 2.0. It's like 1. Point something I read through. It's so bad. Anyways, who cares? So the so-called problem that you've mentioned is not actually a problem. This is just an unavoidable thing that happens when something is useful and popular. You have 20,000 packages, and that's good. I mean, people make exactly the same complaint about CPAN or about RubyGems. I mean, it's just... It's a good problem to have, I think, because the alternative is that, sure, you might be able to find jQuery or you know, Backbone or some popular packages, but you can't find anything else. And so people don't write modular programs with rich dependency graphs because there just isn't anything to depend on. And that is much, much worse. No, the, so there is a difference between Node and the browser. And the difference is that if I am using five different packages, and each of them have five different dependencies, each of them uses a different library for parsing JSON or whatever, or parsing XML, then on the node it doesn't matter because I can just load it into memory, not a big deal. In the browser, if I have several different dependencies and they all depend on different versions of parsers, they all depend on different versions of jQuery, I have to load those over the wire. Yeah, I don't think it's so simple to say that it's just JavaScript. Yeah, we are getting a little off topic though. Yeah, but we're getting oh, on no, topic. I think this is the exact topic. Um, Okay. This is and and I, I tend to I mean I I tend to agree like not not knowing whether or not when you npm install something if it's going to be browser compatible and uh, I may potentially have to run browserify uh, to make it browser compatible but even then it's still no guarantee it doesn't really seem oh. like a, a solid experience but actually there is a solid way to check this now. Um, Oh. So uh, I've been working on this project called Testling CI, and so if you go to browserify.org/search and you do a search on that, you'll get uh, at the top of the results, kind of like um, kind of like how search engines have ads a little bit, but um, 
if something has been run through Testlink CI, that will show up at the top of the results with exactly which browsers that module works on. I so think hold on, there, there's a thing I want you to address. The, the thing that I'd like you to address is how do you deal with the fact that different modules, if you have many, many, many different solutions to similar problems, and there's a culture of, well, if it doesn't do exactly what I want, let me just rewrite it and write my own version, and you have many widespread dependencies, in the browser, you have to transfer that every time the user loads the page. And, and as far as I know, and, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there's no equivalent to something like Bundler in NPM that will try to distill all those dependencies, all the different versions of a dependency, down to a single version that they can share in common. So NPM actually does this by default if the versions are compatible. So if you have, like, say I use the library uh, through, and two packages both have a compatible range, and so NPM will actually move that uh, up a level. And it does this recursively for, for all of the, the module levels. Sure, you're, you might get version discrepancies. You, you probably will if you have a really a lot of dependencies. But I think that that's actually a feature because, I mean, for me personally, it's much, much more important that these pieces work in the first place than than if they're exactly optimized. I mean, most of these libraries are very tiny in the first place. I mean, like, maybe 10 kilobytes is a big module. And, and then you can minify and gzip it, and it's, it's nothing at that point. So I don't, I don't know. People make this complaint a lot, but I really haven't seen it <laughs> so much. So, so the reason I think it's an issue is because I see many web applications in the wild that are built on small frameworks like Backbone that end up being like five, six, seven, hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred k. So it seems obvious that if you something's happening, one is either web developers are having to write a lot of code themselves to build their web application, or they're having to include many, many dependencies that don't know about each other. And because there's no shared ecosystem, there's no kind of like standard library, if you will. They each have to implement their own. For example, like for each shim, right? So if you're using something like component, then each library can't depend on the fact that for each has been shimmed in something like Internet Explorer, so it has to shim for each. Even though you, if you knew that you had a shared dependency, you could just say, well, I'll just use the one available there. Well, that's exactly where explicit dependencies in the package JSON can help you out, and where having a separate module to do that is very beneficial. I don't really think that it's a problem with micro-frameworks so much as a problem with not having a module system or not using a module system. I mean, once you use a module system, you can actually, you know, explicitly say, okay, I'm going to depend on this package, and this package can do, do all the work for me instead of having to inline everything. Now, when you're talking about a module system, you're talking about, like, AMD? I'm talking, like, CommonJS. I mean, okay. AMD would be another example so, that I don't like as much, but... So if I can jump in here, the issue, what it sounds like to me, isn't really about whether there's a module system or not. That's just why packaging them as a one library is useful. It's because it's the best way to package it. But I think the real issue is how do these libraries talk to each other? In Node, we have very, very simple conventions. There's the Node callback convention. There's the Node stream interface. And for the most part, this is pretty much all libraries need to talk to each other. This library takes in a stream, outputs some other stream. And so you don't need a whole lot of conventions. But when you get into other, other use cases, like maybe you're making UI widgets, then UI widgets need some conventions. Like how do you get to the root element? How do you tell a UI widget to redraw itself? How do you do event delegation? And there's just a much bigger surface area of how these modules need to interact. 
Furthermore, how do they communicate to each other? Do they trigger events on themselves? Do they have some sort of known API? Right. And and if there's no conventions, then every library is going to do it differently. So it's it's not so much about whether they're bundled or not. That's a packaging issue. The the problem is whether they agree or not. And I think this comes back to thinking about the whole thing holistically and climbing climbing the mountain together, if you will. Right. It actually so there are a lot of trivial choices and. There are choices that end up not really mattering in the long term, but developers love to argue. So developers are going to argue about, for example, should I use Lodash or should I use underscore? Now, if I'm building a web application where there's many, many small dependencies and there's not kind of the shared ecosystem where everyone just accepts, okay, you know what, we're just going to use underscore. Now I have one dependency that uses underscore, one dependency that uses Lodash, another dependency that uses whatever else. And these things actually add up. These things add up over time. Oh, for, for you mean latency. Uh, yeah, just in terms of like the amount of JavaScript you have to ship over the wire, focusing on trimming that down is actually important. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's not on Node, right? Like, and, and I think so. I think NPM is great. Don't get me wrong. I think NPM is fantastic software. I think it solves a problem extraordinarily well on Node. But the browser has so many more constraints than something running on the server. Oh, it matters in Node too. Well, uh, but the thing is, NPM doesn't doesn't is not the problem there. The problem is developers going in with the mindset of not not considering those problems, right? I mean, like you could have any sort of package manager; they're all going to have that problem until the developers are disciplined to understand it and code to that problem. Right, and that's so why I think it's largely to. a community issue, right? It's largely a community ethos issue. So the the Cloud9 use case, I worked on that, and from what I understand, that was largely why ddupe was added to NPM in the first place. NPM used to have this behavior that James described, where if you have two compatible dependencies, it only installs them once. And then somewhere down the line, that behavior changed, where even if they're compatible, it'll still install two copies. And when you have a large project like Cloud9, we end up with a gigabyte of JavaScript just to get a server started. And Cloud9 it's insane. Awesome, by the way. Good job. Cloud9 is cool, but there's a lot of JavaScript in there because it's a whole lot of tiny libraries with no conventions at all. I mean, and crazy stuff. Like, I want I want WebSockets, and so I'm going to l- l- depend on the WS library. Well, the WS library has this CLI component, which depends on these five CLI libraries, and I don't know. It, it explodes. It's a problem there, too. I mean, it's not as sensitive as sending JavaScript over the wire across the Internet, but it's still a sensitive issue, just yeah. on a different magnitude. Tim, you've just described every you've just described the problem that I've encountered every time I've tried to build a big application. Yeah, so so to boil it down, I mean, really, what it seems to come down to is is like Tim said, you know, you with with the large, uh, I, I don't want to use the monolith, the word monolithic. Let's say fully featured um, libraries, they, you know, everything in there is designed to work together, and in the um, the one off libraries. The thing is, is it, it does their jobs well, which is really nice, but they don't always talk well together. And so depending on what your problem is, you may find that it's simpler to go with something that everything is there, some things you may not need, but overall everything works well together and you, you get everything you want in just one big uh, library versus having to go figure out what all the pieces are that you're going to need to do what you want to do. Well, I think that's a mischaracterization because when you have something that, you know, all of the pieces work well together, there can't be that many pieces because the the institutional overhead of managing that kind of a thing is much higher 
than a distrib completely distributed ad hoc community like NPM where everybody's just doing whatever. So the, the benefit of the other side of, you know, everybody's doing whatever autonomously is that you have a much broader swath of scope. So there's, it's much more likely to have some obscure module that you need that, mm -hmm. does, that does that one thing very well that you just don't get in a more integrated community. I, it's I also, totally agree. You, you it's, also get the variety you get to. It's also much more likely to have exotic uh, bugs, obscure bugs that you've never heard of either, right? Like if you look <laughs> at the jQuery source code, in fact, now in jQuery 2.0, there is more. So jQuery 2.0 has pulled out support for the old IEs. There is now more code in jQuery 2.0 that deals with WebKit and Firefox bugs than IE bugs. Wow. Interesting. That doesn't and, surprise me. Right? So people have this misconception that, oh, if all I target was WebKit, then I don't need to worry about all these crazy IE workarounds, and that would reduce the code dramatically. In fact, no. WebKit and the various JavaScript runtimes have had crazy insane bugs. And you have to work around those because they're still deployed, right? You're still, you still have users who are coming and visiting your website using those runtimes. So if, every, if you have different dependencies and some of them solve some of the bugs, you're going to have a worse experience than something like jQuery where everyone's on it, so you know it's well-tested, it's well-run through, and you have an entire community, an entire organization around fixing those bugs and making sure there's a consistent experience across all these very different browsers. Sure. So, I mean, I still don't think that you need it packaged together. I think we, we should all work together to solve the module system for the browser. I just I don't know if we'll ever agree on what the best solution is. Uh, well, I mean, it's coming in ES6. Dave yeah, Herman's working on it. Dave Herman's a very smart guy. You talked to him recently on the show. He's I disagree the that I anything is going to happen in ES6 that anyone will like. I don't even know that people on ES6 will like what they come up with. Well, if they agree, <laughs> then that'll help. What is, but wait, what, wait, what does that even mean? It's I. I am just completely pessimistic. I've just completely written ES6 off at making a good module. I'm not convinced that they will be able to pull anything off that anyone likes. Uh, well, well, well the aside, module system looks like Python. Why didn't they choose JavaScript, uh, CommonJS, or, or AMD? Like, it's so stupid. They're, like, they're let's not, make another standard and not standardize. They're not aware of what people on the ground have been doing all of these years. They're just inventing more language uh, so that's, abstractions that nobody needs. So, so now that we're down this rabbit hole, why don't we go ahead and do picks? <laughs> Uh, we can do that as long as you promise me that you'll have uh, James and uh, Dave Herman on for another episode to talk about this. Yeah, I, I was going to say, James bring, bring Isaac also. The module system. Isaac would be good, yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do. I, I think it's definitely worth discussing. I didn't realize that there was a module system coming down in ES6, so we could definitely talk about the pros and cons and maybe some of the things that they could, could consider, should have considered, um, and see where we go with it. I, I think well, it'll be real interesting. So, so my point before I mentioned modules and got sidetracked was that ignoring that problem, then all that's left is we just need conventions that people can agree on. Whether their package is one package or a thousand microlibs doesn't matter as long as they work together. Mm -hmm. one, of my favorite, one of my favorite books by the pragmatic people was Interface Oriented Programming. And the book basically says it's all about your interfaces, how things work together. That's all that really matters in the end when you have modular code. Yeah, we talked to Sandy Metz on Ruby Rogues, and, and she said a lot of the same. You know, it, it, it's how they interact, not what they are, that really defines what your code is or what your program is. Anyway, um, let's get to picks. Uh, Merrick, why don't you start us off? 
Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick jQuery 2.0 and also the ECMAScript <laughs> six module definition. <laughs> I think that troll has horns. And, and also and also AMD because I actually think all those things are awesome. All right, uh, Joe, what are your picks? All right, I'm gonna pick uh, two things. There's a musical artist named Yuruma. I think he's a Korean. Composes uh, original piano pieces and stuff's just. Awesome, absolutely awesome. So I'm gonna pick him, and then I'm also gonna pick a TV show, uh, Elementary, which is apparently the hottest new show on TV. I've been watching it since the season started, and it's freaking awesome. I didn't really get into it, but oh I'm man, it's amazing. I'm you, glad it's you're enjoying because it. you have no taste. That, that, that is that is very likely true. All right, AJ, what are your picks? So most amazing thing perhaps in my life even was my friend had a birthday party and it was a tasting party so he bought these tablets called miracle berry tablets and miracle berry is a fruit that has a very unique and special protein in it called miraculin after the word <laughs> miracle and when it binds when it Binds to your taste buds, it makes everything terrible taste amazing. So you can take something like grapefruit after you dissolve one of these tablets on your tongue, and it tastes like the sweetest, most delicious, amazing fruit ever. So there's that, like, you can just you just pick up nasty stuff out of the fridge that you hate and stick it in your mouth, and the worse that it would normally taste, the better it tastes with the miracle uh, berry tablets. So um, the only downside is that once you put that on your tongue and everything tastes delicious, you start putting these terrible foods in your mouth, like particularly the, the citrus fruits is what it's really, really, really powerful for. So you like just bite into lemons and limes and, and all that acid still makes your tongue raw and eventually bleed, but you don't feel it until the tablet wears off. Sounds like a bonus feature to me. So, um, so did you want us to sell it and then sell it to our <laughs> friends or try it and then sell it to our friends? Yes. Oh my gosh. This stuff's amazing. You've got to have that experience just once. It's a little expensive, but no more expensive than your common drugs. So, um, Are you promoting drug abuse? Hit. Wait a minute. <laughs> I also I'd like to subscribe see, uh, to your THC newsletter. on this agreement list, AJ. I think that might be something else miraculous about these miracle berries. All right. Well, no, AJ, I want to come to your group. parties. One other thing is uh, I compiled together, maybe I mentioned this on the last show, I don't know, but I compiled together a script for Ubuntu. So if you're getting started with Ubuntu, you know, you've made the jump to get into Linux and, and you're trying to commit yourself to it, I put together a script that'll install all the common things for you, like Skype and Chrome and Steam and like all the stuff that you would expect to kind of have on it already if you had bought it pre-installed from like Dell or HP at, at Walmart, you know? Does that mean it puts the ask.com toolbar on it as well? Because I can't browse the web without my ask.com toolbar. None of that stuff. Uh, you know, it, it just installs the things that, that you should get, like the Microsoft fonts, so Times New Roman, Arial, you know, yada, yada. Just the things that that they, uh, the DVD player, the Blu-ray player, stuff that they don't include by default, but should be there. All right. Jameson, what are your picks? Mine is just one. It is a Dwarf Fortress comic called Brave Mule. So if you don't know what Dwarf Fortress is, it's a game made by this like math genius hermit guy that is basically like 
this super realistic simulation of of controlling this colony of dwarves, and it it simulates their like sanity and their internal organs, and it's it's incredibly detailed and complex and hard to get into. And I'll never ever play it, but it creates these amazing stories. Um, so this this guy, or actually this team of people, documented one of their dwarf fortress games on this website called Brave Mule. And it's it's amazing. It captures just the weirdness of the game and all the crazy things that happen. And and it's got this really um, cool comic art style that accompanies it and stuff. So even if you've never played the game, aren't interested in it at all, it's a really good story. Um, so you should check it out. It's just bravemule.com. All That's right. It. Tim, what are your picks? All right. I got two. One of them is Realtime Conf EU because I actually get to go this summer in France and it'll be a blast. So if any of our listeners are in Europe or any of our other people like flying to Europe and can afford it, I think it'll be a really good conference. And the other is one of TJ's latest experiments. I'm, I'm a sucker for experiments. He has a project called CPM, the C Package Manager, which is kind of like NPM or component, but for C. And I don't know, that sounds neat because historically all C programmers basically just copy paste or dynamically link all their dependencies. And I think it'd be cool to have a package manager JavaScript style. Isn't that a harder problem to solve in compiled languages too, though? No, the source code is pretty portable. I mean, the linker problem's a pain. How do you link binaries? I don't know. I think it's neat. Because I've been playing with some compiled languages and I always miss NPM. Yeah. All right, that's mine. Well, then I'll go next. Um, My first pick is, um, it's a blog post by Ernie Miller. Um, It's why I love being a programmer in Louisville. And or why I won't relocate to work for your startup. And he talks about why he likes uh, living and working in Louisville as opposed to being in, you know, some of the big software uh, centers like New York or D.C. or San Francisco or any of those. And uh, he kind of outlines a lot of the reasons why when people come after, um, you know, folks that, that aren't in those locations, you know, why, why do you live there? Why do you work there? And, you know, he, he really outlined a lot of the reasons why I work from home in a location other than one of those um, places. The other one that I want to pick is an infographic that uh, the folks over at uh, Crazy Egg came up with. And it's about basically about podcasting list, podcast listening and, and audio consumption. And I thought it was really interesting. So if you're a, you know, if, if you're a podcast listener or a podcaster or anything like that, then this is probably interesting to you. James, why don't you give us your picks? Right. So actually, we touched on both my picks. I was going to pick uh, ci.testling.com, which is the thing I've been working on lately to make tiny modules to give them good browser tests, and uh, Voxel.js, which I've also been working on. And and then I guess I could mention um, Camp.js, where I'll be next week in Australia. It's a um, JavaScript camping conference-y thing. Cool. It sounds like fun. So you're like ultra gold status on whatever airline you use now, right? Ah, uh, yeah, I guess. Because <laughs> you're always on the everywhere. Yeah, his frequent flyer card is uh, platinum plated. All right, Tom, what are your picks? All right, I got I got three for you uh, this time. Um, the first is Discourse, which is a uh, forum software, open source forum software under a GPL license uh, by Jeff Atwood, who you probably know from Stack Overflow. Stack Exchange. Uh, so he's been he's got a new startup. It's an Ember JS app. It's running on top of Rails. Again, open 
source and their business model that they're going for is basically like WordPress. So you can download the source code, you can run it, you can install it, you can do whatever you want. Uh, if you don't want to deal with that, you can pay them and host it. Um, so that just launched the other day and I'm really excited about it because it's the first really big uh, open source Ember app and I think it's cool to check out. It's really fast too. Is cool. it is it Rails on the back end? Because I thought I heard about it from yeah, it folks too. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Rails is. on the back end. Okay. Uh, and the last two things are... Uh, as you can imagine, arguing about JavaScript on the internet gets quite exhausting. And uh, what I like to do to relax is cook, cook food, cook primarily for myself because I'm single and lonely. Um, and there are two things in particular that have really helped improve my cooking and made it more enjoyable. So the first uh, <laughs> is the 10-piece glass bowl set uh, from Williams-Sonoma. Now, really, any two, uh, any set of glass bowls will do, but it makes you feel like a professional. You feel like you're on a Food Network show. You can, uh, there's a technique called mise en place where you basically prepare all your ingredients up front ahead of time, and then cooking becomes very easy and very pleasant, and you look cool too. So if you have someone over and you're cooking for them, it looks really impressive. Uh, the last thing is um, there's a recipe book by America's Test Kitchen called The Best Simple Recipes. And every recipe that I've made in here is very simple. It takes about half an hour, and they have all tasted amazing. They're like an order of magnitude better than the average recipe you'll pull off the internet. So whenever I'm about to cook dinner, I just go pull something from there, and it always ends up great, and it's easy. Are you like an experienced chef, or are you just kind of figuring this out? No, I, I, two years ago, I couldn't even boil water. Um, but it, it's something I picked up. It's nice because, you, you know, you're sitting in front of a computer all day, you don't really have anything tangible. Making something with your hands is really nice and you can kind of disconnect and then you get a nice meal at the end. So it's really cool. Awesome. I think you spent some of my money right there on that book. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, guys. It's It's been a really, really interesting and awesome episode. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I had a lot of fun. All Sorry right. about all the tech problems. I'm glad that Substack got Huzzah! Yeah, we got still. him on. Hey, I'll be back for a rematch whenever you guys want. well i think you both made good points and that that's the thing is it's like okay where do i fall what kind of projects am i working on how does this apply and and there's real value there so thanks again for coming yeah thanks guys